Come on in, everybody, and find a seat. We'll get started. 7.15. And welcome. Session three. It's week four, but session three, because I wasn't able to be with you last week. I appreciate uh, Dr. Snowberger being able to fill in. I did send an email to all that were on our registration list for this class, so I hope if uh, you didn't intend to come last week, since we weren't having this class, that you weren't caught by that. But um, I... I'm sure those who did attend his class enjoyed it very much. I always do love hearing Dr. Snowberger lecture. But we are in session three of How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, and we left off on page four, two weeks ago, page four. We'll finish that off at the very bottom, and then we'll get into the notes that go into page, page six. We announce our hayride that is this Saturday. And it's from 5 to 8, uh, and it's on our website, so you can see the location, the address in New Boston. Everybody is invited to that. If you're not a member of our church, uh, you're invited, perhaps especially invited, because we have these events in part so that we can meet folks who are guests at our church. It's a great way to do that, so I'd encourage you to come. We always have a great time, Hayride and, and Bonfire, this coming uh, Saturday. And our next Newcomer's Orientation, that is a four-week class that we have on Sundays, Sunday mornings in our second hour, 11.15 to noon. Uh, we have that for four weeks, and it'll start on November 27th, November 27th, and then the next three weeks after that. That's for anybody who, again, is new to the church, as the name suggests. Newcomers, it gives you an orientation to our church, what we're about, what we believe, why we do things the way we do. Uh, it gives you information to help you make a decision about a church. It doesn't uh, pressure you. It doesn't obligate you to anything. So if you are new, I would highly recommend that you mark that down November 27th for those four weeks. <clears throat> and then that same day, November 27th, that evening, is our next baptism. And if you've never been baptized, then I encourage you to seriously consider that. It's a command of Christ. We try to make it easy for you to... Uh, to get in the stream of, uh, of getting, moving toward baptism, uh, and that's by filling out a one-page application. We have that at our Welcome Center uh, right in the lobby. You fill out that one page, you turn that in, they get it to me, and then, then we go, go from there. All right, we are in How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, and the, one of the reasons we offer this class is because the Bible uh, can be intimidating. It can be intimidating because of its size and because of its age. Its size, it has 1,189 chapters in it. It has 66 books that were written by 40 different authors. Those 40 different authors uh, composed those books over a 1,500-year period. The first of those books, the oldest, is at least 3,500 years old. And the last uh, bunch of them in your New Testament are 2,000 years old. So it's very old, and it's also very large. It's written in, not written in English originally. The first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, and the second part, the New Testament, written in Greek, and then translated for us into English. Uh, I want to make clear that the English translations that we have of the Bible are once removed from the original languages, just once removed. That is, there's only one translation that's taken place, as opposed to what amazing, I'm amazed at how many people believe that we have gotten the Bible through a series of translations from one language to another to another to another, and then finally 
At the end of that, we get it, we get it, in, we get it in English. And as a result of people thinking that, they think that the Bible has hopelessly lost its original message. Because if indeed it is the product of a translation to a translation and all of that, then in fact it would lose something over, over that, that time. But that's not the way it happened. It's not the process. One translation, Old Testament from Hebrew to English, New Testament from Greek to, to English. So how to get the most out of your Bible then is designed to try to take some of the intimidation out of, of the Bible. And we do that, uh, one way we do that is what we have on page four. Last half of page four, we say that the Bible is really about a handful of things. It's about creation, and it's about the fall, and it's about redemption. And if you can get your mind around that, if you understand what is meant by creation, fall, redemption, then you'll see those themes through the rest of the Bible. And the good news for us is those three themes are set at the very beginning of the Bible, the first three chapters, as a matter of fact give us all three of those, creation, fall, and redemption. Now, by creation, we're, we refer to an orientation. This is God having made uh, the world, the universe, and humanity in particular. And he speaks to humanity, and he gives us an orientation to himself and to his world. So this is who I am. This is who I, God, am. And this is what I expect from you. This is who I am. This is what I've made you to do. I've made you to reflect me back to me, so you're made in my image. I've given you this beautiful, uh, beautiful world to cultivate, and you will be given the privilege of communing, having fellowship, relationship with me. So in creation, God gives an orientation to himself and to the world in which he placed humanity. And then the fall results in a disorientation. Things disintegrate. Things are distorted. Nothing's right. Everything that was supposed to be a particular way is now, uh, is now not as it was designed to be. I have a book on my shelf on the subject of sin. It's just a book written on, on sin. One time, I was, as I was reading that book once, like right in the middle of the book, it occurred to me, you know, books are usually dedicated to somebody. It's right in the middle of the book, and I thought, <laughs> who would you dedicate a book to sin? I, and sure enough, I go to the front, and this guy is dedicated to some friends of his <laughs> from the past. But the name of the book on sin is, this is the name of the book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's the name of the book. And that's a, it's exactly right. It's, quite, it's a very, very good book, uh, by the way. Uh, we have it in our, our resource center. Not the way it's supposed to be. But the fall then results in a disorientation. All that was supposed to be and all that God had said in the orientation is now, is now distorted. And so man is not having uh, fellowship with God. We no longer, by nature, have a relationship with God. In fact, quite the opposite. By nature, we are estranged from God. We're not only estranged from God, we're estranged from each other. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, begin pointing fingers at whose fault it is, ultimately pointing the finger toward God. We're estranged from our world, from the environment. The environment is cursed. And this beautiful environment that God made that was a paradise is no longer that. And so we have the kinds of natural disasters and all the things that we have to contend with now, all because of the curse of, of the fall. If the Bible leaves it there, we are in a world of hurt. We live in a world that is hurt and hurting because of the fall. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave it there. And when he is meeting out punishments, to the man and to the woman and to the serpent whom Satan had energized uh, to do his bidding and to tempt the first man and first woman. He's speaking to the serpent and he says, because you have done this, uh, you're going to crawl on your belly so the serpent is no longer going to walk upright as it apparently did in the, uh, in the garden. But also, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. And you are going to um, strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. That's what God says in Genesis 3.15. So in the just third chapter of the Bible, you have this hint now that God is going to do something about the problem of sin. And that something he's going to do is going to come through the seed of a woman. It's going to come through a human being. 
somebody who's going to be part of the human race. And there's going to be Satan and his spawn that are going to try to keep that from happening. There's going to be enmity, there's going to be war, but of course God is going to ultimately prevail and he's going to crush your head. That's what God predicts and that's what we see unfolded in the Bible and we see unfolded even in time now until the culmination that the Bible predicts at the end of, of human history. So the Bible's about these three things, about creation, about the fall, and about redemption. That's the third one, which is a reorientation. So you've got orientation, disorientation, and now reorientation. God is reorienting His world to the way it was originally intended to be. And when you get to the very end of the Bible, you find that the Bible is like bookends. You see at the very beginning in the garden and creation, the way it was, and then you come to the very last book of the Bible in Revelation, and the last chapter in the last book, and you have the heavenly city, and you see some things that are very much like what we originally had in the garden. God has restored that. He's reoriented His world to what it was originally made to be. And, of course, we know He does that through this seed of the woman that we now know as, as Jesus Christ. And we'll see that story then unfold. So, bottom of page four. The Bible's about creation, orientation, the fall, disorientation, redemption, reorientation. Um, creation and, and orientation is this is who God is and this is what I expect from you. The fall is disorientation, who we are and what our problem is. That's what that is. And then redemption, reorientation is what God is doing about it. So I say at the bottom of page four, uh, second to the last paragraph, the Bible is about these three things, creation, fall, and redemption. What we read in the Bible can be further refined and summarized in a sentence. People in situations before God. I mean, that's one line, but it's actually a mouthful because if you're going to get that right, people in situations before God, you have to then know who we as people are, what humanity is what humanity was made to be, and what humanity has become as a result of the fall. So we just use the word people there. That's big. Because people are originally made in the image of God, and the Bible says fearfully and wonderfully made, and all of that. And yet we also are these sinful beings. And very complicated. And the implications of all of that are myriad. But the Bible is about complicated people. Like that. People... In situations before God, okay, well, there's the other one, God. And in order to get the Bible right, and in order to get your view of the world right, your worldview, then you have to understand who we are as people, but you have to understand who this God is that made us as, as people. And, of course, the Bible is, is regularly, in, in all that it says, revealing, making known the character of God. Sometimes it says things about God that are very direct, that God is, that God is holy, that God uh, is faithful, that God cannot lie, those kinds of things. So it's telling you direct things about his character qualities. But at other times, it's telling you things about him just by how he interacts, just by the things he does. They inform us, they reveal things to us about, about this God. So the Bible's about people, and it's about God, and those are both huge subjects. But it's both people and God in situations. And the Bible, because it was written over a long period of time, involved a lot of different people in many, many different kinds of circumstances, then you read the Bible and guess who you find in there? You. You're in there. I'm in there. There are enough situations in the Bible, there are enough circumstances, enough interactions, God knew exactly how much to include in order for us to find ourselves there. So that God could give us a book that it can claim fully equips us for every good work. Now even though it's a, a big book, that's quite a claim. But this is an omniscient God, an all-knowing God, and He knows precisely what needs to be included, and He included that. And so you've got all of these situations, and you read those situations, you're supposed to look for yourself. You're not supposed to go, tisk tisk. Those people, if they could just get it together. You know, what is wrong with those Israelites, man? 
I mean, that's, and when you read it, it's easy to do that, isn't it? As we're going to go through the survey here, you see the Israelites and you're going, okay, can you guys get a clue at some point? But they mirror us. And you see humanity behaving in the way they behaved over and over and over again. And if you're honest about it, you see that in your own life as well. So you're supposed to find yourself there. Now, notice that last paragraph. Although the circumstances in Bible times are different than what we have today, two things have not changed, God and people. So as we survey the Bible, one thing for you to bear in mind <clears throat> is that anything you come across where you, where you might be tempted to think God is different in one place than he is in another place, you got it wrong if you did that. God has not changed. The God who made the world and the God who is, is the same God. And in fact, the Bible makes that claim that God does not change. And there is nothing that could actually change God because... God controls all of the circumstances, so circumstances can't change God. Nothing can, nothing can change the character of God. The character of God remains constant. When we do our second foundational class, that those of you who have not taken it, I hope you will, um, next fall, Master Plan for Life, uh, we go over the character qualities of God. And I talk a bit about the, the faithfulness of God. And part of that faithfulness is because God is immutable. He cannot, he cannot change. So God does not change. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, what would I come up with that, that I might think is changing God? We might, I think we'll have time today to talk about an episode in the life of a, a Bible character, Abraham, and, um, and how Abraham uh, established a relationship with God. And it's important to see how that happened because some people make the mistake of thinking that the way folks in the first part of the Bible had a relationship with God was by keeping rules, by keeping the law. And we're going to see that that's wrong. And it's wrong because the Bible teaches it's wrong, and it, would ha it has to be wrong. <laughs> I mean, it just has to be. You know why? Because God doesn't change. God is completely holy. And therefore, at no time, under no circumstances, could God accept your and my imperfect works as the basis for a relationship with him. Not back then, not now, not ever. And so this idea that God doesn't change is really important. Throughout the Bible, even though the circumstances change, the character of God does not, and people do not change. Every person that comes into the world is a son or daughter of Adam and Eve. And every person that comes into the world has the same problem that Adam and Eve uh, developed because of the fall, and they pass on to their children. And so people do not change. And in fact, at heart and in our nature, people are all the same as well. All of us are the same. You look at the, you look at the worst criminal, and you look at that person, and you think about them, and then you think about yourself, and you, could, you should say and really believe, but for the grace of God, so go I. This is what the Bible teaches. People have not changed. Now, thankfully there's redemption, and in redemption, God changes people. <laughs> and He changes our nature so that we no longer have the nature we acquired from Adam, and we have the one we get from Christ in, in salvation. But as people come into the world, all the same, all inheriting our nature from Adam, Adam and Eve. And I say, God has provided enough situations. In fact, two-thirds of the Bible is narrative. Most of your Bible is stories about God interacting with people. And you have a narrator telling that. You have somebody writing about it, telling you what happened. So you're reading it, and you're reading about you know, Moses and the Israelites and you know, all, that God did, all that God did with them. Uh, most of your Bible is, is that. It's narrating. But even though those people are different than you, even though the time and circumstances are different than, than yours, you're not different, God's not different, and so you're able to apply what you see there to your own life. So God has provided enough situations that we can see ourselves in its pages as the one story that unfolds recounts how fallen people interact with the Creator God and He redeems them. All right, 
Now turn to page six in your notes. Page six. And we will get into the survey of the Bible itself, starting, of course, with the Old Testament. Your Bible has these two major sections, Old and New. And you see at the top here, it says Old Test the Old Testament, and then it says the first 2,000 years. So that implies there's uh, at least a second 2,000 years. So what we're going to look at on page 6 is the, the first 2,000 years of history recorded for us in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. But then on page 8, I think it is, you have a second 2,000 years that we will, that we'll look at. So you've got the first 2,000 years, and then you've got a, the second 2,000 years. So if you're doing the math, it tells you how many years we're looking at in the, in the Old Testament. We're looking at 4,000 years from Adam to Abraham. So it begins with Adam. You know that. It begins in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And in the very first chapter of that first book, God creates humanity in his image. Chapter 2 gives us a detail about the creation of humanity, detail about day 6 of the creation week. But it starts with Adam, from Adam and then to Abraham. You get Abraham at the end of chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11. So chapter 1, you got Adam. Chapter 11, you get Abraham. And then there's a focus upon Abraham. But in those 11 chapters are 2,000 years. So it surprises people sometimes to learn, oh man, we got, <laughs> we've got 2,000 years in just the first 11 chapters. And then after those 11 chapters, Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, is another 2,000-year period. But the first 11 have 2,000 all by, all by themselves, so obviously quite, quite compact. Now, throw in one quick disclaimer, and then we'll, we'll keep going top of page 6. But when we say it's 2,000 years, it's at least 2,000 years. There are these genealogies that I mentioned two weeks ago. We'll see again uh, here shortly. Genealogies that tell you that uh, one person uh, had a son and then that son had sons and it gives you these generations in these genealogies. But there are some gaps in the genealogies. And so it doesn't quite work to simply count up the years and say this person had a son and that son lived so many years and then just take all of the years and add them up and then you have it exactly right. Uh, it's, not, it's not designed, those genealogies are not designed to give you an exact number uh, for the entire, for the entire uh, section. So it's at least 2,000 years, but, uh, but no less than, than 2,000 years. So the first 2,000 years. And the top of page 6, we say the Old Testament covers 4,000 then years of history. But the first 2,000, or half of the Old Testament time-wise, is covered by the first 11 chapters of the first book of Moses called, called Genesis. They are, and then here's what you've got in those 2,000 years. Chapters 1 and 2, you have creation. Chapter 3, you have um, the first sin. In chapter 4, you have the first murder, chapters 5 and 10, genealogies. That is, lists of fathers and sons. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, you have Noah and the flood. In chapter 9, the rainbow covenant. And then chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. So from Genesis 1 through 11, those are the major events and persons that you have in, the, in, in those 2,000 years. Now, I'd just like to take a little bit and go, and go through some of those events. We've already talked about creation at some length uh, a couple of weeks ago, so I won't bore you with that again. But with regard to the first, um, the first sin, that first sin re resulted in blame shifting, it resulted in, in hiding, uh, it resulted in a sea change in the nature of humanity and our relationship with God. But hear this. Even though sin separated humanity from God, starting in Genesis chapter 3, and everybody comes into the world estranged from God, 
Sometimes people will say, you know, I always knew, I always knew God. I always had, eh. <laughs> we all come into the world estranged from God, separated from God because, because of sin. But there, there, there is a sense in which, uh, because we are made in the image of God, God is still like a memory that we try to repress. So God is always there. And people, because of their sin nature, are running from the God who is there. And we find all kinds of different ways to do it. And our psyches, I mean, psychologically, people are profoundly affected by this fact that we were made for relationship with God, and yet we run from the God for whom we were made. And a lot, a lot, I'm telling you, I'm convinced that many of the psychological problems that people have actually go back to spiritual problems that go back to the garden and the fact that we were made for God and yet we're running from this God. So when you see sin here, don't think of sin as just this historical event. Adam and Eve did it. Man, I wish you guys wouldn't have done that. You really messed things up. Boy, I'm glad Jesus fixed that and we'll all be able to go to heaven. No, this thing has profound ramifications for all of us and for, and for our world. And so in chapter 3, you have sin. Chapter 4, you have the first murder. Now, what, what can you learn out of the fact that you know, Adam and Eve commit the first sin, and then one of their progeny, Cain, commits the first human murder? Well, one of the things you can get out of this is that, that the root of sin is not the environment. I mean, think about where Cain was. I mean, Cain is, okay, it's not the garden, I grant. But he's, he's just a bit removed from a paradise, okay? <laughs> and nobody else had ever committed a murder. So sometimes we, we talk about how people who commit violence are people who've seen violence. And, they, and so they mimic what they've seen. And... There, there's truth to that if you put it in the right framework, but somehow in that framework you've got to account for the fact that the first murder was committed and nobody had ever seen one. So how do you account for that? Well, the only way to account for it is that the root of sin is in the human heart. And it manifests itself in this first murder of one brother to, to another. So in that debate between nature and nurture, nature is fundamental. And then the way we are nurtured will then, yes, have an effect on how we sin, but it's our nature that determines that we, in fact, will sin in one way or another, and for most of us in more ways than one. In chapters 5 and 10, you have the, the genealogies, and this is now God keeping track of the seed. I'm going to put enmity, remember, between your seed, serpent, Satan, and her seed, the seed of the woman. And now God in Genesis 5, Genesis 10, you come to the New Testament, you get a, it starts with a genealogy to point to the fact that Jesus is actually the seed uh, of the woman that God promised. And God's keeping track of this. And so the genealogies, as I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, far from just being... Uh, spilled ink, are actually quite important to the Bible's overall, overall narrative. And then you have chapters 6, 7, and 8, and those are about Noah and, Noah and the flood. Uh, the Bible teaches that is a flood that is a universal flood. Um, it's a flood that engulfed the entire world. It was not a local flood, as some people say. It's a universal flood. Only eight people survived. The, that universal flood, and that would be Noah and his wife, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their three wives. So you have eight people who survive. If you are a Sunday school teacher and you, uh, you know, paint on the walls in your Sunday school room or something and you put up pictures and you tell the kids, uh, hey, Noah's, Noah's Ark is my favorite story. I mean, just remember, 
How many people perished? <laughs> okay. I mean, sometimes, I mean, because don't we? We make the cartoon version of Noah's Ark. And, you know, there's the animals two by two and, and all of that. But there are, this, is, this is a horrible thing. This is an indictment, a judgment from Almighty God on the sin of humanity. And if you go back to where it starts, that story starts chapter 6. It says in chapter 6 and verse 5 that God saw that the thoughts and the inclinations of mankind's heart was only evil continually. That's what it said. And so God determines to judge the world. And he judges the world through the, through the flood. Saves Noah and his wife, his three sons and their, their wives. Hey, what do, you, what do you guys think about Noah? What was it about Noah that God says, you know, I'm going to wipe the earth uh, off the face of the earth. Millions of people. And I'm going to save Noah and his family. What is it about Noah? Now, this I'm just laying the seed for you for later. But as you see these people like Noah, as we're going to see in a little bit, Abraham, and those people escape the norm, as you see those people, resist the temptation to think that they are extraordinary people. They're not. It's not Noah. It's God's grace to Noah. Matter of fact, the Bible says, and I'm quoting now, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's why Noah was spared. And had Noah not found the great grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah also. It's not like Noah wasn't guilty. It's not like his wife wasn't guilty, his family wasn't guilty. They all were. We are too. And God could justly so... You see that at the very beginning. You see some people spared, but why are they spared? And we sometimes get the idea you know, that God looked around and He's looking, can I just find one righteous person out here? Ah, there's Noah. Noah's got it together. Well, to whatever extent Noah has it together, it's because God did His work in Noah. <clears throat> and in fact, you are going to see throughout the pages of Scripture this repeating cycle. And it starts very early here, this repeating cycle of God giving His grace, people sinning in response <laughs> to the good gifts of God, God judging, and then God starting the cycle over again by showing grace again. Grace from God, sin from people, judgment from God, grace again. And God keeps doing this over, this cycle over and over and over again. You have the, you have the flood, <clears throat> which means God intervening in the hydrological cycle, to put it mildly, in a, in a big way, right? And so, I mean, you talk about climate change, yikes, <laughs> right? So how are you supposed to do science? How is science supposed to happen if God jumps in and just determines in an instant that he's going to have these cataclysmic things happen? Then how can scientists ever predict anything with accuracy if God's always jumping in? Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, thankfully, and God could do that. Of course, it's his world. But in Genesis chapter 9, at the end of this whole episode, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 22, Genesis 9, 22, God gives a promise, and he says, okay, I've done this. But he says, from this point forward, and then he talks about the seasons, and the seasons are going to go forward in a regular cycle. I'm not going to do that. So that you can harvest, and you can plan, and you can do those things. And so we are able to enjoy science as we do because God has chosen to refrain from, from doing this. Now, there is a time yet in the future that the Bible predicts when he is going to destroy the world, not by water, but by fire. fire. And uh, most of you know that the covenant that he made with Noah was the rainbow. 
uh, as a promise that I will not destroy the world in this way in the future. Again, it's God's grace. So God's grace given to the world. The world sins against that grace. God judges. He shows grace to, to Noah. And then he's showing grace to the world in the form of the, of the covenant. And that covenant includes that cycle uh, from Genesis 9.22. And then, you know, God, is, God has done this. Okay, let's start over. There's eight of us. Let's see how it goes. Well, how does it go? It goes south. Why does it go south? Because those people have the same nature that everybody else had. They're going to have kids who have the same nature that come into the world. So it's every time it's going to, it's going to go south, and it does go, go south. So much so, you have the Tower of Babel episode in chapter 11, where the world, in effect, has gathered to defy God and to set up a tower as a religious symbol for the ingenuity of humanity. So, in effect, people are worshiping themselves rather than God. You know, so we read that story and we think, you know, God really got ticked off for just a construction project. But <laughs> this was more than a construction project. This was, a, this was an object of worship and worship of human ingenuity over, um, over the, the creativity and the, the grace of God. And so God destroyed the, uh, the tower, but he, he, he confounded their language. And so now people are separated from that point on by language. Humanity is separated into various nations and so on. All right, so that's the sweeping story of those first, first 2,000 years. Now, when God spared Noah and his, his family, I told you he had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And God begins to hone in on uh, one of those three sons as the line through whom the seed of the woman is going to come. So when Genesis 3 says there's going to be the seed and the solution to sin is going to come through the seed, this will be a human being that will come in the future. Now God is starting to get more particular about through whom, which line that's going to come. And as you read forward, it turns out it's the line of Shem. Shem. And when you come to the end of chapter 11, you have a son of Shem, a descendant of Shem, Abram. And it's, it's Abram that God sets his affection on, gives his grace to, through the line of, through the line of Shem. And it's through Shem, and then one of Shem's de descendants, Abram. And then you're going to read this line over and over again in the Old Testament. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So this is God now narrowing down the line and through whom the Messiah, the chosen one, the seed of the woman is, is going to come. The God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And you guys remember how many sons that Jacob had? He had 12. Jacob's name, we're going to see in a moment, was changed to Israel. And so he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. So the God of Abraham, descendant of Shem, then his son Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. So now, instead of dealing with the whole world and God looking at the whole world and saying, as he did in Genesis chapter 6, that the thoughts and the intents of their heart is only evil continually, now he's focused on a particular person and a particular people. He's focused on Abram, and he's focused on the Jewish race, the Jewish people. So if you look at that second paragraph, Genesis 12 starts with Abraham. And you're now up to 2000 B.C. After Genesis 12, we will no longer memorize each chapter as we go through this, but we'll learn the main events of, of the book. Abraham was born in a big city with a, a little name, Ur. So if you guys will, 
take a look at the back of your notes, and I think it's page 25. It is page, you got 25, and you see a map there. But then, if you turn to the next page, you'll see a continuation of the map. So we couldn't get the map all on one page, so it's continued on the second page. Now, if you look at the very middle of this map on page 26, toward the bottom it says Arabian Desert. Do you guys see where it says Arabian Desert? Middle, bottom. Just look to the right of that, and you see, do you see Ur? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Abram and where Abram's from, that's where we're talking about, Ur. So that is, notice in blue, to the left of that, it says Iraq. So Ur is in modern-day Iraq. Abram was, Abram was called by God, and Abram begins to take center stage now in God's interactions with humanity out of this place, Ur, called Ur of the Chaldees in, in the Bible. Some of you met, you know, in the Detroit area, there are a lot of Chaldeans. Chaldeans are Iraqi Christians. So Chaldeans are, are different than Iraqi, Iraqi Muslims. They're Iraqi Christians. But, of course, there were no Christians at this time. But they're called, they've carried on this name of Ur of the Chaldees. And so when you hear of Chaldea or the, Chalde the Chaldeans, we're talking about what's modern-day Iraq. You see just above Ur there, Babylon in all capitals, and then just to the left, Babylon with just the first letter capitalized. So you've got the city of Babylon to the left, and then you've got the nation of Babylon the area of Babylon, capitalized. And notice as well that these, um, that, that Babylon and Ur and all of that are bounded by these two rivers. You see the rivers Tigris and Euphrates? Rivers there? So those rivers are named in your, in your Bible. When you, when you read about creation in Genesis chapter 2, it mentions the Tigris and Euphrates when it talks about where the Garden of Eden was. Now, after the Garden of Eden and creation, we had this cataclysmic event occur, the, the flood. And the flood like literally turned th things upside down, moved things around. So we can't, with precision, pinpoint something that's in Genesis 2 with where something is after the flood because things got, things got moved around. But these two rivers continued to be called, those names continued even after the flood. And then one other thing. This whole area is referred to sometimes as Mesopotamia or the Fertile Crescent because it's some of the most fertile land in the, in the world. So it appears there's still an echo of the garden <laughs> in, in all of this. Um, and that is where God calls this guy, Abraham, Ur of the Chaldees. All right, now, and, and, oh, all right, one other thing. So you guys remember the uh, Iraq War? Uh, well, before the Iraq War in 2003, March of 2003, when we went into Iraq, before that we had Operation Desert Storm, so that was, you know, 90, 91, 92. And that was when Saddam Hussein had gone into Kuwait, and then we went into Kuwait to chase him, chase him up. And that happened pretty, pretty quickly. I remember when that war started in Desert Storm. The Pentagon had determined that they were going to allow journalists to be, and this is the term they used, embedded with the troops. And so they would allow a journalist to ride along with a particular group. And so they did. And, and I can still remember, I, was, I happened to be watching ABC, and they have some journalist who's like in a tank, and they're cruising across, you know. The, and 
as they're going, Peter Jennings, who was the main, um, who was the main anchor man for ABC, says they've just passed the ancient city of Ur, where Abraham. He says that, and when you when you think about, it, you see modern day events happening. And then you see those happening in a place of historical significance like that. It's, uh, to me, it's, it's amazing, one. And it also, it just reminds me that everything that's happening today, guys and gals, everything, is moving toward what God has said is going to happen at the end. And moving not just toward what's going to happen, but where precisely it's going to happen as, as well. It's going to happen in the Middle East. Jesus is going to return to where he first came, in uh, Jerusalem. And it's all going to happen just as he said. All right, turn back to your notes on page 3 then. So Genesis 12 starts with Abraham. Abraham was born in this big city of, of Ur. Four people left Ur, Ur for the city of Haran. Sarah, his wife. Abraham, Lot's nephew, or Abraham's nephew Lot, and then his father Terah. When they get to Haran, uh, Terah died. God promised Abraham he would give him, there in chapter 12, a land, a seed, that is generations of people, and a blessing if he would go to that land, then called Canaan, which is what Abraham did. He went to a land that God was going to, to show him. Now, here's Abraham... He's in Ur, and God speaks to Abraham. So, what was great about Abraham? You guys should be conditioned now. <laughs> What's great about Abraham? Nothing. Okay, there was nothing great about Abraham. It was the grace of God. Abraham was a stone worshiper, an idol worshiper. That's what they did in Ur. He knows nothing about the true and living God. He knows he's a creature of that God, as all people do, but he's a stone worshiper. But God says, I'm going to use this God. And God, it just shows you over and over, God can and does use anybody. And when God uses people, it's because of God's grace, not because of those, those people. All right. So God has narrowed now the focus from the entire world to one man and, and one people. Abraham and what's going to become the nation of, of Israel, the Jews. He makes in chapter 12 uh, and then in, uh, ratifies it in chapter 15 a covenant with Abraham. A covenant, an, an ironclad promise, an agreement. In the Bible, there are a bunch of covenants that are made. God made a covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, it's called. And that covenant was what's called an unconditional covenant, meaning God says, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to do in relation to you. I'm not going to destroy the world as I did, and here's a sign of that in the rainbow. It's a covenant, but it's an unconditional one. You don't have to do anything. I, God, am going to do it. There are no conditions on it. This, this, this covenant with Abraham is an unconditional covenant. I'm going to do this through you, Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your seed great, all of that. I'm going to do this. And so he promises it, and God is going to carry it out. If God makes a promise, it because of his very nature, it has to be carried out. So it's unconditional. Now, there are, and we will see next week, conditional covenants. God made a condition, a covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses, who will come later, and he gave his law. And he says, here's my law, keep these, do this. You do this, and these great things will happen for you. If you don't do this, then these horrible things will happen. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, Deuteronomy 28, it's all about that. It's all about the, the blessings that will happen if you follow and the curses that will happen if you don't. That's a conditional covenant. It's conditioned upon, 
upon what you do. God gives an unconditional covenant ratified in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham. God is going to do these things. Now, Abraham, as part of this covenant, is circumcised. That was part of the, the sign. That became part of the law later. And this is where I want to talk for a minute about what I said earlier. Where, as you read through the Bible story now, it's important to keep the nature of God as unchanging. Because we're now at a point where you start to see laws that, and, and, and ceremonies that God institutes. And people began to believe that it was through observing those ceremonies and those laws that you gain a relationship with God. And over centuries that happened. Israel became a works-oriented, law-oriented nation. And here they are the whole time, a bunch of sinners that all could be destroyed, but they didn't think of themselves that way because we keep the law. We're special. We're God's chosen people. Now, let's just think for a minute here. Were, they, were, they God, were, were Israel and the Jews God's chosen people? You guys are afraid to answer, I know. <laughs> the answer is yes in one sense. They are certainly God's chosen people in the sense that God is going to accomplish His purpose through them. And so that's why the whole Old Testament is centered on this people and this nation. He's going to do His work through them. But the fact that He's going to do His work through them doesn't mean that they are better people. Just like Abraham's not better, just like Noah's not better. But you can see how people get the idea, right? So every one of those people, even though they were born into the nation and into the Jewish race, they, and, and the males would all be circumcised to signify that we're part of the covenant community, even though that was all true, they all had to come to personal faith in God. And if they didn't, their membership in the nation meant nothing for them, spiritually. And that's why when you come then, when Jesus finally comes on the scene, and over centuries now, this idea that we're special and we keep the law, and by keeping the law, we have a relationship with God, and Jesus comes along and says, no, you don't. And I'm the Messiah that was written about. And I've come to die for your sins because you're not good enough. Well, that wasn't... That wasn't uh, received favorably. But it was all because they had this mistaken notion they were chosen in the sense that they were spiritually chosen simply because of their race and their nation. And none of that was true. You could be born a Jew and born into the nation of Israel and you could die outside of a relationship with God. So how was, by the time you come to the New Testament, this becomes a really big deal. Yes, with the clash between the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus, but also the Apostle Paul had to deal with it regularly. Do people have to be circumcised in order to have a relationship with God? And that was a question that the early church had to face. It was a question that the Apostle Paul wrote about. The whole book of Galatians is about this. And he talks about it in the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, Paul is making the case that it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. Since all of us have the same problem, chapter 3, he's laid out the problem of sin for everybody. And then he summarizes it with this famous verse that many of you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he comes to chapter 4 and he says, okay then, if that's true. And Jews and Gentiles both are sinners alike. Then what about Abraham? He actually brings up Abraham. How was Abraham given a relationship with God? Paul asks. 
And here's what he says. I'm quoting. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what it says. Now, why is that important? Because that's a quote from Genesis 15. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15. Here's the Apostle Paul using it in Romans 4, and he's saying, Abraham believed God, and it, that belief in God, was counted as righteousness. Not Abraham's righteousness, not stuff Abraham did. It was in whom Abraham believed. And because he believed in God's promise, then God counted that as righteousness to him. And by the way, that's the way you have a relationship with God today. You believe what God has said about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and God counts that as righteousness to you. In particular, he counts the righteousness of Jesus to you personally. So, third paragraph. Now we have three key people. Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Creation is the key event at the time of Adam. Abraham's move to Canaan, today's Israel, is the key event in 2000 BC. Before the flood, people lived for about 900 years, as Noah lived 500 years before the flood, which was the key event then around 2500 BC. That living 900 years uh, thing, what's, what's, what's that all about? Well, it's, it's just, you know, um, you, haven't, you haven't had a, a ton of time for the gene pool to be totally, to be totally messed up with genetic problems and hereditary kinds of problems, really. And so if you, I've got some articles on that if you're interested in it. But that's one of the reasons that people lived as, as long as they did um, back then. In Canaan, fourth paragraph, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, father of the Arab peoples, Isaac, father of the Jews. The Bible follows Isaac. Now, why does it follow Isaac? Follows Isaac because God had said, I'm going to give you, Abraham, a son of your own, from your own body. But Abraham got to be uh, 100 years old. And he's like, this is not going to happen. So he fathers a child with one of his servants, Hagar. And that child is Ishmael. But God says, this is not the promised child. You're going to have a child through your wife, Sarah. But Sarah's 90. But lo and behold, God gives them a child through 90-year-old Sarah. And they named the child Isaac, which means laughter. Because that's what she did. That's what the Bible says Sarah did. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> She's saying, you can't make this stuff up. And so God gave, God gave the chosen son in, in Isaac. And so the Bible then follows Isaac. Um, almost done here for tonight, but I don't know if you guys have ever had opportunity to talk to a, a Muslim friend you know, about what they believe and about the Quran. Uh, one of the things about Islam is that it traces um, its ancestry, the ancestry of Muhammad especially, through Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. And Ishmael's the hero of the story, not, not Isaac, it turns out. And in Islam, the, the promised son is not Isaac, it's Ishmael. So the son, remember the story about Abraham taking his son up on the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice because God told him to do that and then God spared, spared Isaac? In Islam, that son is not Isaac, it's Ishmael. Now, so the historical characters have changed completely to fit the nationalistic ethnic narrative. You say, well, how can we know who's right about that? Well, which one came first? Anybody got an idea? The Quran was written, the Quran was written in the 7th century A.D. 
Muhammad lived in the 600s AD. That's, that's 600 years after Jesus. That would be 2,600 years after Abraham. So the story was changed 2,600 years after the event actually occurred and after it had actually been Isaac for, for all of that time. So in Canaan, he has these two sons. The Bible follows Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau, the father of the Edomites. The Bible follows Jacob. His name is changed to Israel, who had these 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of, of Israel. All right, we will pick it up there. It is 8.15. We'll pick it up there next week. Thanks. If you want some homework... Look at, page, look at the next page, page, um, page 7, I think it is.